Well, it was a little over a week ago. Uh, I woke up earlier than, than usual uh, that morning. And it was one of those mornings you wake up and, and your mind immediately begins to just get very active. Your mind just starts racing. Um, I began thinking about uh, a number of friends, a number of brothers and sisters uh, in Christ who have been dealing with some very difficult circumstances uh, this year. So many trials, uh, so many burdens. Uh, in some cases, uh, so much pain, so many disappointments uh, and doubts. And, and I don't know what, what you might be struggling with. I don't know uh, all about all the ups and the downs of your life and, and those things that you've experienced uh, this year. Uh, But I do know this, if you're in need of of some encouragement this morning, this this message is for you. Uh, I pray that uh, as you leave this morning, you'll you'll leave with less of a focus on your circumstances and a greater focus on the Savior. Now, if you're there in Matthew chapter 12, one of the things that that you have to keep in mind is uh, that in chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 11, a, a new section begins... Uh, it's really the third of five divisions in this particular book. It's, uh, and this particular section, this third section in part, is about the expectations that people had about the Messiah. For ten chapters, Matthew has systematically, he has methodically presented Christ as Israel's king and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy proclaiming Jesus as the promised Messiah. He's done this in a a very convincing manner. Christ has been introduced to Israel as her promised Messiah and King, and Christ himself has manifested his authority as the King by performing nine different miracles, and Matthew records those for us. But then for the next two chapters, in, in chapters 11 and 12, Matthew focuses on the expectations that some had concerning the Messiah and the reactions of various individuals and groups to the works and the words of Jesus. In these chapters, we we notice as we read through them that there is a growing hostility that develops, an escalating opposition Uh, more frequent and more intense negative reactions. Uh, Chapter 11 begins with John the Baptist. Uh, This is the forerunner of Christ. John John was the one who prepared the highway for Christ. He is the one that addressed Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away sin. He is the one who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. He's the one that saw the Spirit of God descending and remaining on Christ. He's the one that heard the Father's voice of affirmation from heaven. Uh, Nevertheless, here we are just about a year into Christ's public ministry, and John the Baptist is wondering if he has made a mistake. Uh, He's looking for some kind of clarity Uh, looking for some kind of confirmation because John, at this point, is behind bars. 
Uh, John is, has been imprisoned for publicly denouncing Herod's adulterous marriage to his brother's wife. And, and John, honestly, is, is confused. He is, he is confused and concerned about God's activity. And he's concerned and confused about his own life circumstances. You'll notice, you want to flip back maybe a page or so in, in your Bible to chapter 11 beginning in verse 1, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? I mean, what in the world is going on here? I mean, this is John the Baptist. This this is... This is John, the, the one who had been devoted to, to the Lord from his youth. This is the one who thundered against the sins of his day. This is the one who singled out from the crowds about him the ringleaders that had seduced Israel away from God and at different points called them a generation of vipers. John preached the right message. John preached to the right people. John, John preached... At the right time, he was fearless and he was faithful, but it was because of his faithfulness that he was sent away to prison. And after being in prison for several months and, and, and unable to preach or to have contact with the outside world, uh, with the exception of, of occasional visits by his disciples, John began to have sincere doubts and concerns. And why did he have doubts and concerns? Well, he had doubts, I believe, because Jesus wasn't doing the things that John the Baptist had told the people that the Messiah would do and that John himself expected the Messiah to do, such as coming with blazing judgment. You'll remember back in Matthew chapter 3, when John is preaching, he he, when he's describing the Messiah, he says he is the one who will come. He, he will come gathering the wheat. The Messiah is the one that's going to come and gather the wheat. He's going to burn the chaff with, with unquenchable fire. John doubted because he had certain expectations of how the Messiah should act. And Jesus wasn't, in his opinion, fulfilling those expectations. John's view and his expectations weren't lining up with Jesus' actions and Jesus' follow-through. I mean, if Jesus were truly the Messiah, why would he let his forerunner suffer in prison? Uh, Where's the love and the compassion? Or more importantly for John, where is the justice? But John wasn't the only one who misunderstood things about the life of Christ. The crowds or the general public had their opinions too. In chapter 11, just a few verses down, beginning of verse 16, Jesus said this, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon." The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man 
and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In other words, there, there, weren't, uh, there were many in Jesus' day that criticized Jesus, and in this case, John, even John the Baptist, no matter what they did. Jesus says they're like, they're like immature children. They're like, they're like immature uh, juveniles, determined to not be pleased, uh, determined to not be satisfied, no matter what you do. Even the majority of those that had witnessed Jesus' miracles rejected him. In fact, the more numerous the miracles, the greater the rejection. Down in verse 20, Matthew says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. <clears throat> repent, those cities in the, on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Woe to you, he says, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if, if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So for the most part, these cities rejected Christ in spite of his works, in spite of his miracles, in spite of his signs, blinded by their sin, blinded by their self-interest, disappointed that Jesus did not meet their expectations. And then there was the Pharisees who condemned the disciples of Jesus for picking the heads of grain on the Sabbath. We see this in the first part of chapter 12. And then, the t- and then Matthew goes on to tell us uh, about how they, the Pharisees then attempted to trap Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 9, departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more, th- how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out. And conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. See, the Pharisees were absolutely disgusted with Jesus. They despised Jesus. Uh, And eventually, as verse 24 records in chapter 12, they they would attribute Jesus' miracles to the power of Satan. Why would they do that? Faulty expectations. I mean, there is no way that the Pharisees were looking for a Messiah that would upset their religious system. Not a chance. Uh, These were the guys that Jesus would go on to say in Matthew 23, 23. He would say they were totally ignorant of the meaning of justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
So why does Matthew include all of these things in chapter 11 and, and into chapter 12? Well, well, we have to keep in mind that Matthew's purpose isn't simply to show us the uncertainty of Jesus' followers like John the Baptist or even the 12 disciples back in Matthew chapter 8. And it's not simply to show us the growing animosity or the negative reaction of the public or the religious leaders of Israel. I believe Matthew also wants us to take note of Christ's response to these various individuals and groups of individuals and to see more clearly than ever before that Jesus is the king. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He is the one sent by God. Matthew wants us to to look at Christ himself, to look at the life of Christ, to to gaze at the the glory of Christ, the ministry of Christ, uh, the, the excellencies of Christ, the virtues of Christ. The way that Jesus carried out his, his ministry to embrace a vision of Christ as God's servant that compels us to receive and to trust him. In fact, Matthew provides for us an amazing description of Jesus, the servant of God. A description, I believe, meant to persuade us that he is the Messiah. So let's pick back up here in chapter 12, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet... Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. In these verses, we have uh, a we, we find a eleven fold description of Jesus, God's perfect servant. So, if you're taking notes, there's eleven points. Okay, we may have broken a record. Okay, this may be the, the most points in a sermon this year, out of this pulpit. But but we're going to go through them quickly. So we have a, this eleven fold description of Jesus, God's perfect servant. And the first thing that Matthew indicates for us is that Jesus is a rejected servant. Jesus is a rejected servant, a servant that the Pharisees conspired against and sought to destroy. In other words, Jesus was the true servant who was condemned by false servants. Jewish religious leaders who concluded the exact opposite of the truth, who were so far from God that that they were actually seeking to kill Jesus. The one that God intended to exalt. Again, we see this progression in in these two chapters in 11 and 12. From doubts to criticism. From criticism to indifference. From indifference to rejection. And an open rejection. Which 
eventually becomes blasphemy, a, a blasphemy for which Jesus pronounces upon them damnation and tells them essentially, you will never be forgiven. Now, the parallel account given to us by Luke in his gospel says that they were, in, in chapter 6, verse 11 of, of Luke, that they were filled with rage. The, the Pharisees were at this point uh, overflowing with wrath and rage and anger and would have likely murdered Jesus on the spot had it not been for the Roman government or some of the spectators that were enamored with Jesus. Uh, Mark also provides a detail in his gospel that the Pharisees immediately began conspiring with the Herodians. And, And so... What what that means is that Jesus was not only a threat to the religious leaders of of Israel, but he was also a threat to the political leaders, the political establishment. And so by Mark telling us this, what he's saying is that, listen, these guys were getting together. The Herodians and the Pharisees did not like each other. But in this particular case, the religious legalists, the Pharisees, and the irreligious secularists get together on this plot. And the killing of Jesus was a given. It was a given. The the only discussion at this point for them was when and how and where. Matthew makes this point clear. Jesus is a rejected servant. Those who prided themselves on the assertion that they were the servants of God rejected God's true servant. And that is how it has always been, right? The, the true prophet being attacked by the false prophet, the true shepherd being attacked by the false shepherd, the true preacher being attacked by the false preacher. Not only is Jesus a rejected servant, Matthew also tells us that he is a devoted servant, a devoted servant. Verse 15, but Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And then in verse 16, and Jesus warned them not to tell who he was. And this is not the first time that Jesus does this sort of thing. He does it with when he cleanses the leper back in chapter 8, verse 4, and then the two blind men in chapter 9, verse 30. Simply put, Jesus was devoted to God's plan. He was devoted to God's plan. Uh, Jesus knew what was in the heart of the Pharisees. He knew that they were planning to kill him. The problem was this is two years too soon. It's two years too soon. We're only a year into the ministry of Christ. The hostility and the hatred, as we've seen, was escalating, but it wasn't time for Christ to die. So from then on, Jesus had to be protected, as it were, from a a premature execution. And so he, he would withdraw himself. And for the next two years, this cycle continues. Uh, Jesus uh, preaching, uh, a few people responding in a positive way, the majority of the people responding uh, in, in, in opposition in a negative way, and then Jesus withdrawing to a new place and then preaching again, and then the cycle would go on like that, would continue for, for two years. The, the point is, God the Father has a plan, and he had a plan for the life of Christ, and that plan could not be violated. Every prophecy had to be fulfilled. Jesus couldn't be killed by a mob. There, there had to be a cross, and it had to be on God's timetable. And what Matthew tells us here is that Jesus was committed to God's will and to God's timetable. He was committed to that. He was was submissive and obedient. He would offer himself, certainly, as 
the, uh, the willing sacrifice, but at the right moment. He would die when death was appropriate. And until then, he would withdraw or command others not to tell the religious leaders where he was or where he was going because he was completely committed to the plan of God. So he was a devoted servant, and he was a compassionate servant. He was a compassionate servant. Verse 16, that's where we kind of skipped over this, but he says there that many followed him, and he healed them all. He healed them all. It's very, very interesting what happens here. Think about all that's going on in the heart and life and the mind of Christ. I mean, Jesus is basically moving away. He's withdrawing to save his own life. Uh, he, he has to be preoccupied with God's eternal plan, uh, of which he is the focal point. He, he has to be concerned uh, about the burden that's coming in the next few verses of, of, of blasph- blasphemous rejection on the part of Israel's leaders. And yet, Matthew says that in the midst of all of that, Jesus concerns himself to heal them all. Each one that came to him, the sick and the infirmed, those who from the Pharisees' standpoint or their their viewpoint made no major contribution to society, Uh, the Pharisees didn't do anything for these people. Uh, they had no concern for these people. I mean, all the Pharisees really did was just strap and, and, and load people down with man-made laws and regulations. But Matthew makes this point. Jesus is not like them. Uh, Jesus had deep concerns. He had deep concern for these people. Uh, his heart broke for those who were distressed and downcast. He, 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 his heart broke for those who were, as he says earlier in the book of Matthew, like sheep without a shepherd. Those who have been trampled, those who have been despised, those in pain and in suffering. And, and, and not just as a demonstration of his authority and his power, but as a demonstration of his loving heart. He was the true shepherd and he healed them all. This is evidence that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Because the Messiah, God's servant, will have the character of God. And we know that God is compassionate. You remember the Lord proclaimed to Moses back in Exodus 34 verse 6, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Jesus is a compassionate servant. And then notice what Matthew does next. He, he pulls from the book of Isaiah and he quotes a section from Isaiah chapter 42, the first four verses of Isaiah 42. This is actually the longest sustained quotation of the Old Testament in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And he doesn't quote it verbatim. He, he actually... It gives to us what we might call an interpretation of Isaiah 42. Or we might even say an inspired explanation of that passage. Now you, you remember that the Jews are 
are expecting uh, the Messiah to be a great political leader. They're expecting the Messiah to be a great military conqueror, to be a, uh, a warlike figure. And they're also expecting, you think about it, they're also expecting that the Messiah will be recognized by all the religious leaders. I mean, that's kind of a given. I mean, they're, they're assuming that the religious leaders are going to recognize the, 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 the Messiah's uh, but in this particular scenario, uh, the, the religious, religious leaders are the ones who are assuming that they're the servants of God, but not really, and who assume that they know his word better than anyone else, and that Jesus has to constantly say, do you not know? Have you not read? Do you not understand? And so Jesus doesn't fit this mold. He, in fact, he's the opposite of all of this. He is condemned by the religious leaders of his day. Uh, Jesus seems to be operating on a schedule that involves an extended time of humiliation. And rather than being strong and warlike, Jesus is gentle and compassionate. And so Matthew writes... This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Uh, In other words, everything... Everything that is true about the Messiah flows out of what Isaiah said. And what did Isaiah say? Isaiah indicated that the Messiah would be a chosen servant. A chosen servant. Verse 18, behold my servant whom I have chosen. It's actually a word. The word for chosen there is a word that's only used one time in the New Testament. Uh, It speaks of a significant firmness of choice. In other words, this is a firm choice. This is a permanent choice. Matthew is saying, Jesus is the chosen one. He is the very elect of God. A chosen servant. And interestingly, this word for servant in the Greek can also be translated as son or even male child. And in Jesus' case... It then becomes the perfect word because he is both. He is both the servant of God and the son of God. So the father says, behold, look, listen, see, focus your gaze on him. This is my servant son, my trusted, my chief, my royal servant, the one that I have selected to fulfill this role of redemption. And he's not only a chosen servant, but he's a cherished servant. God says, He is my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Jesus is the supremely loved one, the beloved servant son. He is both chosen and cherished by the Father, who lovingly affirms that He has chosen the Son and that He is pleased with Him. A statement that the Father made at Jesus' baptism back in Matthew chapter 3 that would again He would again make at His transfiguration and recorded in Matthew chapter 17. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And in the Matthew 17 Passage, he then says, listen. The father says, listen to him. Listen to him. 
The father declares, he has done everything that I have asked him to do. He pleases me. And he is a spirit-empowered servant. A spirit-empowered servant. Meaning that the father strengthened the son. He, he supported the son. He upheld the son for this task, for this saving mission. The Lord says, I will put my spirit upon him. A truth that speaks of the depth of the condescension of Jesus. That Jesus would stoop so far, that that he was so lowly, that he yielded up the, the independent operation of his own attributes. That Jesus would say, I will be the servant. I will be the servant and I will resign to the power of the Spirit. It's it's a mystery to us, the Spirit's involvement in the life of Christ. but, But we know that Christ could not do the Father's will in His own strength. As flesh and blood, he, he could not step out into public ministry and heal and teach and serve and die without the Spirit's power. He needed the Spirit's enablement. Jesus would preach under the power of the Spirit, energized by the Spirit. He would perform miracles and wonders under the power of the Spirit. So much so that when the Pharisees say, you are of Satan... He doesn't say here in chapter 12 that you have blasphemed me. He says, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Jesus is a spirit-empowered servant, and he is a faithful servant. A servant that wills, verse 18, continues and says, proclaim that will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus was a preacher of righteousness. Jesus was faithful to the message. Jesus taught the truth about man. He taught the truth about man and his sin, man and his guilt. He he, he talked about and, and preached about man's judgment. He taught the truth about the perfect standard of God and the way of salvation. He proclaimed the gospel, and he proclaimed the gospel not only to the Jews, but to the whole world because he is the Savior of the world. He is faithful. And according to verse 19, he is also humble. He's a humble servant, for he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. It's amazing, really. Matthew says, Jesus did not come to quarrel and to wrangle and to get into some kind of shouting match with his opponents, even though that's exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees loved to do. Uh, they love to wrangle with people in public. They, they love to debate. They love to shout. Matthew says, Jesus, Jesus never did that. He never did that. He always spoke with wisdom. He always spoke with dignity. And yet, Jesus always spoke with force, right? I mean, Jesus spoke with force and Jesus spoke with authority, but... But it never turned into some sort of a shouting match. It was never a fiasco. It, it, it was never, uh, there was never any foolish venting on Jesus' part. He would proclaim righteousness, but always in meekness. 
Uh, Jesus was never frantic. He was never violent. But he always acted in humility. Not seeking publicity, but quietly moving down, proceeding down that chosen path in the will of God. Uh, With a winsome uh, approach, endearing himself to those who truly longed to be rid of sin. He endeared himself to those people, people that were suffering, many of them under the weight of their own guilt. And in a similar vein, Jesus is a sympathetic servant. A sympathetic servant, verse 20. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Uh, these, these reeds, they were everywhere in Palestine. I mean, in the marshes, around the rivers, millions of them. Uh, they were often used as a, as a flute, or they would use them to make, uh, use it as a writing instrument, or in some cases a, a measuring rod. Uh, what what Matthew's communicating here, what Isaiah is communicating is about these reeds is that they're common. Uh, These are very common things. They're they're very cheap. They're very, uh, I mean, when they are damaged, the easy thing to do is just to throw them away. You get a new one. I mean, a perfect reed was at best fragile. And the one described here is in bad shape and broken. And, And then we have a smoldering wick, which is, just simply a wick that doesn't give any light. And yet that's the very purpose of it, right? The purpose of the wick is to give light. But this wick doesn't give light because it's almost gone. It, it, it only gives off black smoke. And its smoldering is more of a nuisance than anything. Uh, again, the easy thing to do would be to just put it out. I mean, if you're not, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no heat, there's no, there's no light... And all you have is black smoke. You just go ahead and douse the thing. Let's just completely put it out. If if the reed is if it's that common and it's that and if it's that inexpensive and it just and it gets damaged, you just throw it away. Well, what do these things represent? Who do they represent? Who are the battered reeds and the smoldering wicks? Well, I think you just go back into the context of chapter eleven. And you, and, you, and you begin to realize that the, 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 the battered reeds and the smoldering wicks are those like John the Baptist, right? They're, like, they're those that are struggling with doubts. They're that, those that are struggling with, they've got questions. They, they have unmet expectations. Uh, they're those like, uh, they're the weary and the heavy laden that Jesus addressed at the end of chapter 11, right? Those trying to please God in their own resources, those those burdened by their futile efforts of works righteousness, those trying to find relief from a troubled conscience, those loaded down with external religious observances that that give no lasting relief, those burdened by their failed efforts to do better, uh, the burdens of sins not yet forgiven, the, the burden of sin that they are not able to conquer, those who are aware of their sin and who are aware of their need for a Savior. They are, they are those like the disciples who were hungry. They are those like the man with the withered hand who had been waiting for months, maybe even years, for relief from suffering. They are those dealing with intense pain and affliction. They are those dealing with significant loss. They are those dealing with who might even be doubting their salvation. For that matter, they may be those who are doubting the faithfulness of the Scriptures 
are doubting the very character of God himself. God's love, God's mercy, God's power, God's wisdom, God's goodness. They are those whose hearts are filled with uncertainty and indecision and insecurity. And what does Jesus do with those kind of people? What does he do with the weak? What does Jesus do with those that are about to go out? What what does Jesus do with those that appear to be useless? Just something to be discarded and replaced. Notice Jesus doesn't throw them away. And he doesn't extinguish them and he doesn't add insult to injury. Jesus encourages the weak. Jesus treats them with profound sympathy and genuine concern. He lifts up the fallen. Jesus forgives sinners. Jesus saves the tax collectors. Uh, Jesus loves the outcast. Jesus cheers the fearful. Jesus reassures the doubters. This is our Lord, sympathetic and sensitive to the downtrodden, but also strong and able to establish justice because he is a victorious servant. Notice the end of verse 20, until he leads justice to victory. In other words, Jesus Jesus would overcome all obstacles. Uh, Jesus would, would not be deterred from his mission. He would not give up. He would would not and he will not ever fail. He will overcome any and every form of opposition. He will ultimately establish God's word and God's kingdom and win the victory. He has conquered sin and death and he will bring righteousness to its triumph. And one day, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, says Amos. Isaiah eleven nine. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And for all of these reasons, verse 21, in His name, The Gentiles will hope. You see, Jesus is a saving servant. He's a saving servant. He is the only hope for the Jew. And he is the only hope for the Gentile. And that includes me and most of you. It's interesting. Paul picks up this this particular phrase in his name, the Gentiles will hope, is not actually... It's, it's, it's a little different than the way verse 4 ends in Isaiah 42, but it's actually a lot of the terminology that, that runs throughout this passage in Matthew 12. Paul uses similar language over in Romans 15. I'll ask you to, to turn there quickly. Romans 15. Romans chapter 15. Verse 1, now we who are strong 
ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through, the, through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say, verse 8, Christ has become a servant. He has become, Paul says, a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father or to the fathers. And in verse 9, for the Gentiles to do what? Glorify God for his mercy. To glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And then Paul takes Four Old Testament quotations. He strings four Old Testament quotes. One from the Song of David in in 2 Samuel chapter 22. One from the Song of of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. One from Psalm 117. And one from Isaiah 11 and says this. Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again he says rejoice O Gentiles with his people. And again praise the Lord all you Gentiles and let all the peoples praise him. Again Isaiah says there shall come the root of Jesse. And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles hope. Jesus is God's perfect servant. He came to his own John says. And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. This was the purpose of Christ's mission, to, to, to be a covenant, to be the once and for all sacrifice for, for our sins, to be, to be the light, to, to open our eyes, and to free us from the dungeon of despair and condemnation. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I plead with you to turn to Christ and be saved. Some of you have been attending church here for another 12 months. I mean, another year has gone by. And the whole time, sadly, the whole time, for some of you, you've been holding on to your sin. Growing in your level of indifference to the truth. Don't allow your indifference to turn into open rejection. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And for those of you who are Christians but may have felt, you felt at times this year, you might even be feeling right now like that broken reed or that smoldering wick. Uh, Be careful about your expectations. Sometimes we believe God is obligated to act and to behave in a certain manner according to our timetable. And it just doesn't work that way. And as we come to the end of a calendar year and as we approach the beginning of a new year, may we get our eyes off of our circumstances 
and behold Jesus, the perfect servant. May we remember his compassion and his mercy. May we trust him and glorify him and learn from him. And may we recommit ourselves to tell the story of his love. Let's stand for prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this great privilege we have to come together as the body. Thank you for your word, and we thank you this morning for Jesus, who gave his life for us to save us, to redeem us. We thank you for his sacrifice, for his resurrection, and the promise of eternal life. And beyond that, we want to thank you for the kind of person that he was and is, devoted compassionate, faithful, humble, sympathetic. In him, you've given us the standard of the kind of people that we are to be. We ask that you would make us like the perfect, beloved servant son. Would you help us to be devoted to the truth, to walk in your will, and to have concern and compassion for those in need. For your glory and the sake of your name, amen.